From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, Elijah McLean's mother, Shanine. She reflects on her son's life and death in police custody. They unleashed him in a way because now other people can see his soul. Other people can see his heart. And Elijah's touching good hearts everywhere. Now she's pushing Congress to act. We'll also hear from her representative, Jason Crow. Then, never before had someone with an intellectual disability led a Special Olympics board until Mackenzie Bove-Nickel came along. She'll serve with a Colorado co-chair. If someone has a disability and then the other person does not, we are working together as one. And a longtime Christian music host on a tune that went viral in the pandemic. Before long, there were virtual choirs all over the world, from Canada to Vietnam to Madagascar. CBR represents one of the few unbiased news sources still available to us. And in an age that we need to stay more informed than ever, it's important that news sources such as CPR still exist. The in-depth reporting is fantastic. All the different topics that are touched on in a day are things that we're interested in, and we so appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. To our membership community, thank you for supporting CPR. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Elijah McLean's mother says it's time to end a system that allows for police brutality. Shanine McLean's comments come as Congress considers a bill to prevent police misconduct. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act mirrors a new Colorado law, for instance, banning carotid holds nationwide. Elijah McLean died while in Aurora police custody in 2019. An independent investigation commissioned by the city recently found officers had no reason to stop him. Meanwhile, a grand jury investigation is underway. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow represents Aurora and has been working with Shanine on reforms. Crow and McLean spoke Tuesday afternoon with CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry. Allison asked what they hope will come out of that grand jury investigation. Well, I would say hope, but I mean, living in America, it's not much to hope for when the country was founded on brutality. So I can't really say hope. What I would like to come from it is that there is, that it stops. I mean, that's basically it. I just, that's ultimately it. Um, They need to be, I feel like they need to be charged, they need to be prosecuted, and they need to spend more time in jail than three years. You know, to me, hey, a life is a life to me, you know. So I'm like an eye for an eye. And they did it in such a way that it's so evil. That's why they should have more than five years. You know, I can go on. We can make it all the way to 100. I got so many reasons. That's why we can count more years, you know, until their punishment, you know. But but that's what I would like to happen. I would like for them to be prosecuted and put in jail for a long time so that not just them, but their allies, their accomplices, um, all the injustices, everything that they claim to have been doing that day in their bravado. I want all of that to be squashed to shame. I want everything about them to look in the mirror and ultimately know that, that they're a terrible human being. And I want them to feel inadequate for the rest of their lives, for the rest of their existence, not just them, but but all who support them, including the evil laws and the evil lawmakers. Oh, yeah, I'm praying for a miracle. 
I want to just spend a moment and just um, reflect on what Mrs. McLean just said and how powerful her initial comment was. Here, here you have um, Mrs. McLean who lost her son in an incident that never should have happened. You know, I mean, just how, how unbelievable is it that here you have a woman who's lost her son and when asked what does she hope for, and she says that she can't help because change never happens. And, you know, our country is founded on, you know, this, this white supremacy and this brutality. That should all kind of shake us to our core uh, and, and make us ask some very tough questions about what is and is not happening. I hope ultimately that justice will prevail and, and that rule of law will be reinforced, right? I, I I'm always careful not to say that there should be a predetermined outcome. There needs to be a, a, a non-biased, complete and fulsome review of the facts applied to the law. You know, the attorney general, uh, I, I believe, will do that. But more broadly, you know, from my perspective, I'm not the attorney general. I'm not a law enforcement officer. I'm a member of Congress and a legislator. And, and more broadly, what's important for me and what my obligation is, is to take this tragedy, the tragedy of the McLean family, and not just simply offer thoughts and prayers, because Shanine knows she will always have my thoughts and prayers, right? But I'm her legislator, uh, and my obligation is to make sure this doesn't happen again, and that we make good law and good policy to fix this. And that's what I've been working really hard the last few years to do. You know, there were a number of things the bill does, um, you know, banning carotid holds, the no-knock warrants, uh, requiring the use of federal funds to make sure everybody has a body camera. Some of the stuff duplicates the Colorado state law that passed last year. But I wondered what was one thing you were most eager to see become law because it will make the biggest difference. One of the things I'm very excited about at the, about the George Floyd Law Enforcement Trust and Integrity Act is uh, the creation of a, a pilot program to change the way in which we recruit our officers. Because you, you can change the law, you can change training and policies and increase transparency and accountability. But really one of the most powerful things we can do is make sure we have the right people in the job right. and, and the right people in uniform. Uh, because if you don't have the right people there, it doesn't really matter what else we do. And what we don't do well on right now is making sure that our, our law enforcement agencies, our police forces actually reflect and come from the communities they serve. So as so often the case, they come from outside the community and not from the community. Uh, so this pilot program that changed the model of recruiting to recruit folks that come from the neighborhoods and from the community, I think would make a really big difference. So you think that, that getting new police officers or a different type of police officer might make the biggest difference of all more than the accountability built into the law? I think they all tie into each other, right? Because you, you need to have the right people on the job and in uniform. You need to have the accountability. You need to have the oversight. You need to have the consequences for when people don't follow the law and, and do egregious things. It, it all ties in, into the reform that's needed here. The systematic reform. Is there a part of this you think would make a big difference, uh, Ms. McLean, in terms of changing the culture of policing? I actually agree with uh, Congressman Crow was saying. 
I think it's important um, that any system incorporates uh, human behavior because we have to know who we're dealing with. We have to know who's coming in for those type of jobs. We, we need to know, you know, why there isn't training, uh, why training has gone on for so long. You know, these these people come in here and they get to know a person's whole record just from having a badge on and then, then they can do whatever they want to do with that. You know, that's the problem. That's dangerous. That's inbred hatred. That's inbred terrorism, you know, on another level. And we're, it's like the country is training its oppressors <laughs> and still paying them. Do you think if this law was in, in effect and, and, and the law of the land, this federal law, anything would have changed the night that your son died, if there would have been any different outcomes that night? Well, I would like to say, yeah, but ain't nothing changed. Ain't nothing new under the sun. You know, they just probably would have found another way of doing it. And what about you, Congressman? Well, you know, I'm here with Mrs. McLean, and I, I don't think it's for me to say, try to hypothesize about what would or wouldn't have happened and uh, in, in whether Elijah would have survived. I don't think that's that's for me to say, and it would be appropriate for me to say to, uh, to Shanine. But, you know, what I do know is that nationwide, system-wide, we have a problem. That's, that's undeniable, that outcomes are disproportionately negative if you're a person of color in America. Uh, and, you know, if you're, if you're a Black person in our community, uh, it's far more likely that uh, you will be stopped by police, and it's far more likely that that stop will end in tragedy uh, or, uh, um, you know, adversely. And that's not okay. So um, that's why, you know, policy matters, the law matters, uh, the recruiting and, and the training and the accountability of, of people in positions of trust matter. Uh, and, you know, whether it will or would not stop any one incident, I don't think you can ever answer that question. Uh, but it will make a difference overall, and that's why we have to do it. You now have to, in order to get this into law, you know, go through the, the U.S. Senate, which is a, a little bit of a taller hurdle in some ways because you've got to get to the 60 votes. Do you have any sense of how you're going to do that and convince, you know, nine or 10 Republicans to go along with this proposal? Yeah, well, we're certainly taking that one step at a time. That's no easy feat to be sure. And, you know, the idea of us having to get to 60 votes is not something I think is, um, is is really right at this point. You know, I think uh, um, we have to force this change. We have to make it happen uh, because it's it's unjust. We can't allow it to continue anymore. We have a moment in time, I think, uh, to make system-wide change. In addition to the Justice and Policing Act and the George Floyd Law Enforcement Integrity Act, which of course is part of the Justice and Policing Act, I'm also working on separate and new legislation that is uh, more specific to the recommendations that have recently come out, the independent review of um, Elijah's death that we're going to push forward. So we, we are not putting all of our eggs in one basket here. Representative Jason Crow and Shanine McLean are speaking with our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, about law enforcement reform. Now, that includes whether police should have qualified immunity, which protects officers accused of excessive force. There's concern that without it, many cops might quit. I think it's important that you, you do look at the qualified immunity piece. I mean, it's, it's an essential to the accountability measure. And I, I don't believe you're going to see these um, ex, you know, exodus from police forces. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think that those concerns 
are, are being overblown. I and mean, I've heard those concerns. I've talked to officers and departments and, and police chiefs and have certainly um, taken into account uh, those concerns as I've you know, crafted this legislation. But I think that the legislation is well-crafted. I think it takes into account the, the complexities of the situation and uh, the, the need to make sure that we, we do have you know, high quality officers in these uh, on these forces and that we're not making it hard to find uh, good people that wanna go into the profession, but at the same time, we're holding folks accountable that need to be held accountable. And Ms. McLean, you know, what do you think specifically about the piece of law that, that does give cops some immunity from lawsuits and that sort of thing? And I know there's, you know, this law and the state law that passed last year that you spoke on behalf of, uh, you know, really tackles that a little and tries to chip away at some of that immunity that they have. I wasn't even aware of qualified immunity until this all happened. I thought that they were regular people like we are, but just jobs, you know. <laughs> I had no idea that they were paid to be special, you know. So the fact that it takes that out of the ball game for them, I think that's amazing. That's tremendous because that's one of the reasons why people sign up and things like that. They're, they get away with things that normal people aren't able to, and then they have other people to support them when they're doing wrong, you know. And that's why I think people that have that type of mentality um, to where they would even want to take somebody's life all kind of just huddled together, you know, and it becomes this type of brotherhood that that's a secret society and that we all end up finding out about later, you know. So I think the whole little qualified immunity thing being lost to the sauce is great. I think that's amazing because it it takes control out of their hands too and it, it, it makes them think about um, what they've done and the ones that that didn't say anything it makes them think about what they've been a part of and the ones that are too scared to say anything it's like why wouldn't you do everything you can to have good police officers on a good police like why not if 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 all the bad people are making threats about oh everybody's about to leave well let's see who leaves with you big mouth you know i, I was driving by uh, this police officer one day and i was just doing it because i was like totally pissed off and um, I put my hand in the air, you know, for my son, and he put his hand in the air too, you know. So I know that there's police officers that are good. They're just caught in between a rock and a hard place. Like, like I don't know. I don't. I don't know what it feels like to be them. You know what I'm saying? But it would be nice if the good police officers stood up and stop allowing the evil ones to just rule the world. Congressman, what's next? You mentioned a bill that you were going to introduce that was inspired by the IRB report or the independent investigators report from the city of Aurora. That's right. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's really important to say how much we need to listen to the victims and survivors and their families here. This is a process that I think has to be driven in large part by those who are most closely impacted and affected by these issues. And that's why I've reached out to Mrs. McLean early and often to get her views on these issues. And we don't always agree, right? We don't agree on everything. There are there are areas in which we we have disagreed before, but she knows I'll always listen to her. She knows that I'll, I'm always have a voice and I'm always available and accessible. And I've learned a lot from her. You know, the bottom line is she's lost her son. I have not. Uh, you know, she has to live uh, in a society, in a country um, under under certain uh, issues and with systematic racism in a way that I don't. Uh, so it's really important that I come at this with humility and with honesty and with an open mind and heart and listen to that experience. Uh, and that's what I'm going to continue to do. What's next is we're going to continue to have the conversations in the community. We're going to continue to draft uh, you know our, our additional legislation based on the IRB 
assessment and recommendations because there's a lot of facets to this this problem, and uh, you know we've just started to to address uh, some of the biggest facets through justice and policing and the Law Enforcement Trust and Integrity Act, uh, but there's more to do. And Ms. McLean, you and you've spoken about this before, but your son's death inspired a pretty large movement here, you know, to try to fix and change and and embark on police reform. I wondered how that felt for you personally, because, you know, people are happy that there's going to be some changes, perhaps, and the state law that passed and, you know, but but you're, you're the one, um, sort of as the congressman just said, you're the one having to live with the fact that your son is not here every single day. And I wondered how that felt personally to have him both be this sort of reason behind some of these big changes in policing, but also the fact that you're dealing with this on a personal basis. It um it makes me proud of him in a different way, you know. When when he was my son on earth, uh, living as an earthling, you know, he was an amazing person, period, you know. He was gentle, he was kind, he was compassionate, he was a healer, you know, he had the Midas touch. And and for that to be stripped away from the world because of somebody else's own issues within themselves. You know, it makes me look at him in a completely different way because they <laughs> they unleashed him in, in a way because now other people can see his soul. Other people can see his heart. And Elijah's touching good hearts everywhere. He's touching people everywhere. And that's something different than what he was doing uh, before. He was touching the people that got to know him on a personal level before, you know, in a, in a close-knit circle. And now he's just touching the world. Like, I'm, I'm so proud on a completely different level now. And it's like, like, I, I be telling people about how Vikings be, um, you know, talking about their fallen ones and things like that. And they go from crying to cheering them on and and daring anybody to say anything about him. And that's how I feel like I am. Like I, I, he's my ancestor now. And he's one of those that I give the, the native call for, you know, like we're here because you showed us the way type deal, you know, so. I love the image that he's your ancestor now. I love that. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. He's like, he's so awesome on a completely different level now. Like, and I, I be thinking like that's that's who my son was, like all that was in that little body, you know. Like it's amazing, and and he's not even done yet. There's like like Mr. Crow said, there's so many things that still have yet to be done because of the people that have been touched by Elijah's story, his life and his death. You know, uh, I was just saying something the other day, like when you're destined to do great things with your life, not even death can stop it. Elijah McLean's mother, Shanine, speaking with our justice reporter, Allison Sherry, Tuesday, along with Congressman Jason Crow, who represents the district where the 23-year-old McLean died in police custody in 2019. The House has passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It's currently in the U.S. Senate. On certain police calls in Denver, mental health teams have been subbing for traditional officers. The six-month experiment has been declared a success, and now city leaders are poised to expand it with an infusion of tax dollars. 
But as Denverite's Dave Sachs reports, some advocates say spending on alternatives should come with a reduction in police funding overall. It's five degrees in downtown Denver. Chris Richardson just helped a man who was hallucinating and walking around with nothing on his feet. So we gave him some shoes. All he needed in that moment was shoes, and we just built a relationship that hopefully if he sees us again that we can have that ongoing conversation about connecting him to that long-term support. Richardson is part of Denver's support team Assisted Response, or STAR, which replaces police officers with social workers and paramedics in nonviolent situations. On weekdays, he and a partner drive a van donated by the police department. Dispatch sends them on calls that would otherwise go to police. City cops only get 40 hours of training for behavioral health calls, but... My whole career has been built on developing relationships and how do I navigate the community and how do I provide stuff to people through my, you know, the collaborations of community supports. And I know that really well. I don't know that officers have that, that full Rolodex that I might have. Richardson is a clinical social worker and addiction specialist with the Mental Health Center of Denver. He's part of a team that got $200,000 to treat behavioral health episodes without a gun and a badge. On some of these calls, like this most recent one, this gentleman was, you know, he was a bit intoxicated, so he ran the risk of having a public intoxication thing. Like an arrest or a court summons. It'll help us to begin to break the cycle of incarceration, because this is a cycle. Leslie Harrod represents Denver in the Colorado legislature. She helped bring Star to the city after seeing similar work in Eugene, Oregon. Because people don't just go in for one time and then they're, they're forgotten about forever. No, it's about a cycle of substance use, of mental health crisis, of inappropriate law enforcement response and an inappropriate criminal justice response. Six months in, the team responded to almost 750 calls. Not one interaction led to an arrest. If you hear about it, it's just like common sense. Oh, yeah, why aren't we doing that? That's Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin, who partnered with Herod to start STAR. He wants it available around the clock. This year, it'll see a jolt of $1.5 million from the city's general fund, an amount that could be doubled by matching money from a mental health sales tax voters passed in 2019. That would multiply STAR's budget by 15 times. However it expands, Chief Pazin sees STAR as a way to free up officers to handle violent crime and property crime, not as a reason to replace policing dollars with behavioral health dollars. Under-resourcing law enforcement kind of gets us into the same place of under-resourcing mental health services over the years, right? Policing and jailing typically make up about 30 percent of Denver's budget. Denver PD estimates that STAR can handle about 3 percent of emergency calls. But Denver City Council member Candy Setabaka thinks if police save money on emergency calls, they shouldn't get to keep it. Redeploying police with the dollars saved from addressing mental health in a better way is not the answer. Sedebaka says the STAR program scratches an itch, but should only spark more changes that replace cops with other services. She floated a doomed bill last year to abolish the police and create a peacekeeping department focused on root causes of crime. We need to reinvest dollars saved into the actual alternative like behavioral health care and housing people, she says, in a city where almost 70 percent of the people who needed help from STAR didn't have a place to live. David Sachs, Denverite. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a special Olympics record off the field. 
I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC. Do you have an instrument that's sitting in a closet somewhere that hasn't been used for years? Why not give that instrument new life? Get it out from under your stairs and get it into somebody's hands who's going to use it, learn from it, and make a difference in their lives. The Bringing Music to Life Instrument Drive is going on through March 21st. You can impact a student in Colorado with your instrument donation. Find out more at bringingmusictolife.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It is a world record in the Special Olympics, but this one's off the field. Mackenzie Bove-Nickel is the first Special Olympian to serve as a board chair for the organization anywhere. The nonprofit, as you may know, sponsors sports for people with intellectual disabilities. And running Colorado's board will be a team effort. Bove-Nickel shares responsibilities with her co-chair, John Shuki. Hi, Mackenzie. Thank you for having me. And John, glad you could be with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Mackenzie, you've competed in the Special Olympics. You've served on the board of Special Olympics Colorado. How are you feeling about being the first athlete board chair? Oh, my gosh. It's it's amazing. I'm still in shock. I'm just beyond grateful to have this opportunity and to be the first athlete ever to be a co-chair. Tell me about your athletic history. What sports do you gravitate towards? For Special Olympics Colorado, I play two sports every season, and we offer 21 sports. So my favorites are winter time is snowboarding and basketball. For spring, it would be soccer and track, and then softball, flag football, volleyball. So you bring a wealth of, of experience and knowledge to this position, and you and John will lead the board as a, quote, unified team. And Mackenzie, I understand that term is really important to the Special Olympics. What does unified team mean? So what unified means is everybody working together as one. If someone has a disability and then the other person does not, we are working together as one. Why do you think that's important? Just to get more education out there and being um, able to communicate with people not just like us. And you've played sports this way, on unified teams as well, correct? Correct, yeah. yeah. So, John Suki, you're the other half of this unified team. Why do you think that approach could be applied not just to sports, but indeed at the board? It is really important, Ryan. We have done a great job as an organization starting with these unified teams at very young ages. So we have young boys and girls in elementary school, people with, with special needs and people without special needs playing on teams together, they learn about each other. Like Mackenzie said, they learn how to, to talk with each other and it creates a great skill set for both parties. And so we've had so much success doing that with the athletes in competition settings. The idea was why wouldn't that work in a board setting? We already have athletes on our board. It would make logical sense that the athlete Mackenzie in this case would bring a different perspective to the board chair position than I would as someone who's the parent of a Special Olympics athlete, but not myself an athlete. Your youngest daughter takes part in Special Olympics, correct? That's correct. My youngest daughter, Nadia, who is nine, does gymnastics and swimming. 
I hear this and I think, gosh, um, there may be people listening who want that experience of a unified team. Is that something that Special Olympics volunteers get to have? So here's the great part. Just within Colorado, we have programs in over 400 schools. And that's really where it starts, Ryan, as we start at that elementary, middle, high school level. Uh, If anyone wants to participate in these unified teams, they can. And then what's great as well is that doesn't end when high school ends. Hmm. We have community teams as well. So you can be, uh, like myself, a mid-40s adult. And if you want to be a unified partner uh, with someone to play golf, you can do that. Or you can play on a soccer team. I mean, Special Olympics been around 50 years. Why did it take until now, do you think, for an athlete like Mackenzie to serve as a board co-chair? I'm going to jump in here, but Mackenzie, I want you, I would love to hear what you have to say as well. Okay. So it has been just in the past decade or so, uh, Ryan, where we've seen, I think, a shift from focusing simply or solely on athletics when it comes to Special Olympics, which is still very much central to the mission, to where we are uh, really focusing on athlete leadership, because we found that the skills that are picked up on and off the field help our Special Olympics athletes to be successful in life and things like holding jobs um, and just having a productive life. And so it's only been recent that we've seen kind of a shift to that more comprehensive approach yeah, to, holistic, to working with athletes. Mm-hmm. Holistic. Yes, it's exactly the word I was searching for, <laughs> that more holistic approach. And so I was very surprised, Ryan, that we were the first to do this, or we are the first to do this. I figured that someone else must have come up with this idea first because it makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure we won't be the last. Mackenzie, do you have some frustration that you're the first, I wonder? Um, yeah. I mean, yes and no, because it's still new to me. But um, I was more excited to share opportunities with other athletes and other people with disabilities and showing them that they can be on the board chair or they can do whatever they want with their lives. It's not, there's no barriers. But, I mean, there are barriers, but you can break those barriers. And how do you see your role each day? Or like, give me a sense of the the job. And I know you're you're still learning it. What you know? What does a day or what does a week look like? Oh, back to back meetings, like nonstop. <laughs> uh, not gonna lie, I didn't know it was gonna be this much, so much meeting. You know, um, so like we overlook all of the committees for Special Olympics Colorado. So like. HR, the development committee, finance committee. So me and John sit in these meetings and just listen to all the programmings and how Special Olympics Colorado is doing. But yeah, like some days, some weeks are really slow and then other weeks are like super uh, busy. I identify with the meetings, Mackenzie, but I guess this gives you a fuller sense of the kind of inner workings of Special Olympics? Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, I was just, you know, I, I was like an at-large person before being the co-chair, so I didn't really see the big picture of what Special Olympics Colorado and, like, Special Olympics does on the daily day basis. I thought they just do programming, pay the staff, and that's it. Mackenzie, I understand that diversifying... Special Olympics Colorado is also a goal of yours. 
What drives you in that mission? Just to see more people in color in general being a part of a really great organization and like all over the world, you know, not just Special Olympics, just in general, I want to see more equality or and stuff. Where does that desire come from, do you think? Um, I see in communities where people of color or people of different races are always on the bottom, like getting the COVID vaccines or something like that. Like people with disabilities or people of color are always last into opportunities. And having the first, like, vice president being uh, African-American, I think it's a really great thing. So this this feels like an important moment to you, huh? Yeah, and, like, last year was so hard seeing people of color dying and for no reason, but it's always a reason. And I feel like people always assume the worst in us. Like, for me, example, I have autism, right? And I know how to drive, so I know how to drive and all of that stuff. But people, like, always think somebody with a disability can't do a lot of stuff, you know? And so being on the board, I just think it would be seeing that people with and without disabilities can do whatever they put their mind to it. We just might take a little longer to grasp everything. John, you hinted at this earlier, that you hope Mackenzie is not the last Special Olympian to serve as a co-chair anywhere in the world. Do you want to just reflect on that for me? Sure. So we, we have the benefit or have had the benefit of having athletes on our board for as long as I've been on the board, which has been six years. Oh, and I, I know yeah. it was before me as well. And they bring a tremendous perspective to what we're doing. Unless we have the athlete voice telling us what they need, we're kind of blind to things, right? We have the staff who who have their finger on the pulse of what the athletes need, but unless we have the athletes there telling us about their experience, whether it's their practices or their regional competitions or or the state summer games, and we talk to the athletes about everything from the games to the food, you know, and the lodging at these competitions, Without that athlete voice, I don't think you can. the board can fully do its job as well as it can. You know, Mackenzie, John mentioned the idea of training in Special Olympics beyond the field and preparing folks for careers and for their adult years and their working life. I know that the unemployment rate is higher among those with autism. And I wonder if you give some thought to that, if you have concerns about that as someone with autism. There's all different types of autism, like different, uh, uh, what is it called, Uh, spectrums. So for me, it's a learning disability. And for someone else that has autism, I guess I would say nonverbal, they could still get work. They just need to find the right boss or the right company to work with them. But for me, I can carry a job. I can ask for accommodations. But for some people, they don't have that support. And so do you have a career in mind? And is this time as co-chair of a board, do you think it'll help towards that goal, Mackenzie? Yeah, totally. I did work 
for a little while, and then I just decided then it's just it was just getting a little bit too much. Um, but my dream job is to work in marketing for a special Olympics Colorado. I love doing photography, and I'm super creative in all different types of ways. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Mackenzie, John, nice to speak with both of you. Congratulations. Thank you Thank so you. much. Mackenzie Bove-Nickel and John Suki are the new board co-chairs of Special Olympics Colorado. Bove-Nickel is the first Special Olympian to serve in that role anywhere in the world. For one week, the town of Uray was without a full-time police officer. This was in February, when one of every one of them, I should say, caught COVID-19. This is despite the fact that cops were among the first eligible for the vaccine. Reporter Liz Tights covered this for the Uray County Plain Dealer. Liz, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. How did you and your colleague Aaron McIntyre catch wind of this story? Um, So the county had initially announced that there was an outbreak identified in City of Uray offices, um, but didn't identify which of those offices it was in. Um, And then a bit of time later, the police department actually posted on Facebook uh, thanking one of their part-time officers for stepping up while everybody else had been under the weather. Um, So from there, it was fairly easy to connect the dots and uh, confirm through the public health department that the outbreak had been within the police department, and that's what had taken them out for a week. Walk us through this. I understand Chief Jeff Woods started feeling sick around February 1st. Then what happened? So he started feeling sick, um, but he told me he felt like it was pretty mild. He didn't think it was anything more concerning than a sinus infection, and he started to feel better um, within about two days. So he went to work and he attended a training where all of the other full-time officers were. Um, It's a department of five full-time folks, including the chief. Um, and from there, kind of the dominoes started to fall. He got tested the next day um, because the public health department had advised it, um, even though he was starting to feel better at that point. Um, and then he was positive by that weekend. Um, and ultimately, of those five full-time uh, officers, two of them tested positive and were sick. Uh, two of them tested negative but still developed symptoms, so they're considered probable cases. Um, and one was not positive and Uh, not sick, but still had to quarantine because he'd been exposed. Got it. Liz, I'm just hearing a little uh, noise on the line there, if you can hold the phone uh, still for just a moment. So um, help us understand uh, this in relation to the fact that police have been able to get vaccinated since, I think, December, right? Yes. um, Police were among the first in our county to be eligible. Um, Obviously, statewide, those first vaccines were for you know, healthcare workers in contact with COVID patients, but because we don't have much in the way of healthcare facilities in the county, um, locally, our first responders were really among the first to get the shots here. Um, but what we found from reporting um, is that most of our local law enforcement officers had turned down the vaccine. Um, of the five full-time and, and six part-time folks who are affiliated with the URA Police Department, Only two of them had expressed interest in it, and it wasn't actually clear whether they had followed up and gotten it. Um, Three of nine people in the sheriff's office had gotten it, so two-thirds had chosen not to. 
Um, and none of the four people affiliated with the Ridgeway Town Marshal's office had chosen to get it. Um, so despite being the first to be eligible, it seems like the majority of them opted out of it. Right. And th- as you say, this wasn't just the police department, it was other law enforcement officials in the area. And w- what were the reasons that they refused the vaccine? Um, I think the one that came from the chief um, himself that he said was he felt like there was concern about long-term effects of the vaccine that aren't known yet. Um, So I think some of the fear that we've heard from folks that the vaccine is maybe new and they feel like it's untested. And so they worry about, um, you know, what could happen a year down the line. Um, And also concerns about scarcity. Until pretty recently, uh, Uray County was only receiving about 100 vaccines per week. Mm. And so... Um, some of our law enforcement folks, including the chief and the town marshal, said they feel like they're healthy, they're in good shape. If they refused it, they were hoping it would get to other people who maybe were more vulnerable more quickly. To that former point, I just want to reiterate that the CDC says the approved vaccines are, quote, safe and effective. Is that kind of hesitation, uh, as you describe, around the potential effects of the vaccine, is that common among law enforcement? Did you look into that? Um, I think it's hard to tell. You know, there was some reporting from the Denver Post about how nobody's really tracking to what extent law enforcement officers are choosing to get vaccinated. Um, All I can really speak to is what's here in our county and that um, it did seem like among those three different agencies, there was across the board this hesitation to get it. Um, That maybe some of them are potentially starting to rethink now, you know, having seen what happened to the police department. Um, I know the chief said that after going through what he went through, which was just feeling pretty miserable for about a week, um, he said, you know, maybe maybe knowing what I know now, maybe I would go back and get it uh, if I could have. Maybe. Uh, (laughs) Did anything bad happen for that week when all of the full time officers were out sick and you had this kind of stand in helping? No, you know, Uray is a small town. It's about a thousand people. Um, and we're not um, not a particularly high crime area, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, you know, we looked through the police blotter from that week and there was one disturbance at the hot springs uh, that he, that officer had to respond to. And everything else was kind of parking violations, patrols, taking reports, citizen assists, things like that. Um but nothing, nothing major in that week. Okay. In just the last few seconds, have other officers changed their minds about vaccines or gotten vaccinated? You know, that we're not clear on. Um, we know that about a handful of first responders in the county have come to the health department and asked to be rescheduled, but it's not entirely clear yet how many of those are officers versus, you know, firefighters, EMS, other folks who might have turned it down previously. Thanks for sharing this reporting with us, Liz. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Liz Tights, a reporter for the Uray County Plain Dealer and a fellow with Report for America. She lives in Ridgeway. DJs around the state are sharing music with us that's helped them and their audiences get through the pandemic. Today, local Christian radio for the Western Slope. This is KJOL Grand Junction. My name is Kurt Neuswanger. I am the music director at KJOL Radio in Grand Junction. Neuswanger has been with the station for more than 30 years. He sees radio as a way to keep the community connected, especially in the pandemic, and to infuse hope at what can feel like a hopeless time. 
His first musical pick? Yeah, so uh, Waymaker was originally recorded by uh, this worship leader in Nigeria who goes by the name Senach. And her YouTube recording of this uh, now has 169 million views. I worship you. You are here working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. But it didn't catch on in the States until Michael W. Smith recorded it last year. You are here working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. Well, he's probably the best known Christian musician in the country. Numerous other artists recorded it, and uh, and it struck a chord uh, because the song reminds us that God is a way maker, a miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. That is who you are. You are here, touching every heart. I worship you. I worship you. Newswanger heard demonstrators singing Waymaker during the protests for racial justice this summer. His next selection, a track that came out just before the pandemic, The Blessing. It was recorded on March 1st at a large church in North Carolina, and it featured a couple of well-known worship leaders, Carrie Job and her husband, Cody Carnes. Uh, the song is taken literally from Numbers chapter 6, where God told Moses... This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Generations and your family and your children and their children and their children. May his favor be upon you and the thousand generations and your family. I think the song struck a chord with people everywhere who, you know, were feeling afraid and worried. The YouTube video went viral. And a pastor in Pittsburgh saw it, so he called up the other worship leaders, local worship leaders in Pittsburgh, and they created a virtual choir where they all sang the song separately. The Lord turned his face toward you and give you peace. And the whole thing was uploaded on Easter Sunday. And then a pastor in England saw it and created the UK blessing. And that was followed by 100 churches in New York City created the New York City blessing. And then there were 300 churches in Ireland. And before long, there were virtual choirs all over the world from Canada to Vietnam to Madagascar. And Newswanger's final musical pick? It's called Our God. It's by Chris Tomlin. Uh, Chris Tomlin is, uh, without doubt, the best-known worship leader in America. And I like the song because he reminds us that no matter what troubles we're facing, God is greater, He is stronger, He is healer, uh, awesome in power. No one is like our God. Our God is greater, our God is strong.
But KJOL's Kurt Neuswanger says music's not the only way his station keeps people connected. Well, as a radio station, we contacted every church in Grand Junction, Delta, Montrose, our listening area, and posted on our website which churches were closed, which were open, uh, which were doing online only. There's also prayer time, a Monday through Friday staple on KJOL. That's where our listeners call in their prayer requests and their praises. And then we share those on the air. We don't mention names, but uh, our listeners love to tune in and hear what other concerns and issues people want prayer for. And so all across the West Slope, you could hear these prayer requests every morning at 1030. It's 1030. Leslie Kell here and so glad you could join us for prayer time. Lord, we pray for a friend who will be having an upcoming cataract surgery. God, we praise you that the first one went well. We pray that the next one would go well. Also, would you be with the doctors, those who are performing that surgery? And God, we pray for abundant peace for this friend as he awaits that surgery. Kurt Neuswanger of Grand Junction is music director at KJOL, local Christian radio for Western Colorado. It's nonprofit listener supported. We are asking DJs, spinning all genres of music, how they are counter programming the pandemic. And you can find our growing Spotify playlist at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today with our own team of radio makers. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nell London. This is CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for being with us.